0: Father, would you reveal yourself to us this morning? Through your word in the midst of your community called the church, your people, God, would we see you more clearly? Would you help us see ourselves more clearly? Spirit, would you comfort us where we need comfort? Spirit, would you convict us where we need conviction? Would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to be soft and transformed, into your image. Help us see the good news of the gospel and the text this morning, God. Would you go before us? We ask it, we expect it, and we pray it in your son's name, amen. Well, again, if you don't have a Bible already open, open it up to Revelation, which is the back of your Bible. We're looking again at chapter 17, 18, and the beginning of 19. We've been walking through the book of Revelation. This is week 10 of a 12-week series. We've got two more weeks after this, and then we'll start into our Advent season, the four weeks leading to Christmas. And um, we've been looking at Revelation thematically which I think is helpful. Revelation is a confusing book for many of us. We had some friends over last night uh, at dinner at her house, and we were talking with them, and my wife pulled up this email that she gets. She gets these emails because we have um, one 20 year old and then two teenagers that we're parenting currently and she gets this email about um, the slang of teenagers in our culture right now and she reads it and she was reading like um, what's popular on TikTok and this song and she's reading the lyrics and we're just all laughing because we don't understand a word of what's being said about the rizz and it's just like, and I'm not gonna repeat it because I, I don't know if it's good or bad. I don't know what I'm saying. And we were just all laughing because we're going like, what does this mean? This just sounds like hibbity-dibbity-jibbity-dibbity. Like, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what this means. And then our 18-year-old, we, we walked in and our 18-year-old, we read to our 18-year-old. He goes, oh, I know exactly what that means. And we were like, I, I, I don't know, I don't know. And many of us read Revelation that way or we don't read it at all. We look at the back of the Bible and we go like, "What is this strange imagery that John is using in the Bible? We, it doesn't make sense to us, but for the people that first read it, these churches that are addressed in chapter two and chapter three in Asia Minor, they would understand it because John is using the language of apocalyptic literature that's found in the Old Testament, and books like Ezekiel and books like Isaiah and books like uh, the story of the Exodus, they would make sense of the original writing. And so we have to do our work to understand what is actually being said here. And so that's how we've been looking at Revelation thematically. And if you're new, some of, the, uh, of what we put in front of us, just for guardrails, for us to understand what this book is trying to do and what it's trying to say is this. The purpose of Revelation is to disciple Christians to be discerning and dissident in the midst of their culture. Because in the midst of the Roman culture that was oppressive to Christians, they had to be aware of what was going on, not only aware in, in the sense of being discerning, but to be dissonant, to push against this kind of cultural norm that was the way of the dragon as the language used in Revelation, not the way of the lamb, which represents the way of Jesus. And pushing back and being discerning and dissonant would cause worshipers and witnesses of Jesus. And so that just gives us some ground um, to, to understand how this book is being used. And if you're catching up with us, if you're new, last week we started to look at the final judgment. Chapters 15 and 16 describe this the symbol of these bowls being poured out, these seven bowls of judgment on the earth, that if God is good and he's righteous and he's true, he's not going to let evil reign forever. There is going to be an end. To evil. And we started unpacking that process in chapters 15 and 16. In chapters 17 and 18, what we're going to see is we're going to see some of the descriptions of the bowls being poured out, what it looks like, and we'll continue on in chapter 19 and 20 next week. And if you're looking, what we're going to see in the text this morning are really three ideas. Uh, and, and when we talk about uh, chapters 17 and 18, we're talking about the details of the fall of Babylon. And Babylon is an archetype, um, and we're going to see in chapter 17, it's really that sin and evil are personified in a woman, a prostitute. That's the language used, and that's the image used, and we'll explain why that's the case. And then we see in chapter 18 that it's not just a person, but it's a system. And this system is called Babylon, and it represents and personifies evil, not only in a person and a prostitute, but then in a system called Babylon. Babylon. And the reason that John uses Babylon, that the text uses Babylon, is because um, this is an archetype throughout the scripture of systems that are anti-God. They're the way of the dragon. They're not the way of the lamb. And we see in Genesis chapter 11 that these people decide to build the Tower of Babel. And what it says is they want to make a name for themselves. Right? They, they, they want to do life independent of God, which happens in Genesis 3 with Adam and Eve. They, they believe a lie. They get tricked into believing that they're actually missing out, that God's holding out on them. He doesn't really love them, but this is better for me to do it this way. And the same thing is true in the idea of Babylon. And so you can replace the idea of Babylon with really sin. Is another way to say it, but here's kind of uh, where we're gonna where we're gonna see these three things come out of the text in chapter 17 and 18. The first is the beauty of Babylon leads to quiet seduction. There's a beauty of sin that we're gonna talk about. It, it, it leads to quiet seduction, but the truth of Babylon leads to loud destruction. And then our hope found in Jesus is the defeat of Babylon leads to divine consummation. So that's what we're going to see, and those are kind of the orders that we're going to look at in the text. And again, we're going to look at it thematically, so we won't see every single verse between chapter 17 and 18, but we will see uh, a number of them. So um, let's pick up in chapter 17, the first six verses. So if you have a Bible, uh, walk with me through the first six verses of chapter 17. It says this. Then one of the seven angels, who had the seven bulls, came and said to me, "'Come, and I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute "'who is seated on many waters, "'with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, "'and with the wine of whose sexual immorality "'the dwellers of earth have become drunk. "'And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, "'and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast "'who was full of blasphemous names.'" And it had seven heads and ten horns. This is the same dragon described earlier in chapter 12, if you remember that. Verse 4, the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold jewels and with pearls, holding her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written the name of mystery, Babylon, the great mother of prostitutes and of the earth's abominations. And I saw a woman drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with its seven heads and its ten horns that carries her. First point that we're going to see in the text is that the beauty of Babylon leads to quiet seduction. Verse 6 says that when John sees this image of this woman who's dressed unbelievably, holding this golden cup, she's got jewelry on, she's riding this beast, this dragon, he marvels at her. He marvels at her. And the original language in the Greek, this word marvel, um, it, it carries this connotation of wonder or admire. He's kind of intoxicated with the way she looks. When was the last time you marveled at something? I think uh, recently a friend of mine went up to, uh, somebody gave him tickets to the U2 concert in Las Vegas at the Sphere. Have you seen this new concert venue? It's, it's, it's like a big ball out uh, in Vegas and it's got all these LED lights, both on the outside and the inside. And he's telling me about the concert and how it, it feels like you're in this immersive experience. And when I look at pictures or I, when, I, when I looked at videos of the Sphere, it, I feel like I would be marveled at it. I go, this is un believable. It's captivating. It it draws me in. And I just think it's so interesting for, for us to look at the text and we think about John, the author of this letter. He sat with Jesus. He's experienced the risen Jesus. He knows what's good and true and beautiful. And yet when he sees this woman, this image from the outside, it's attractive to him at some level. There's a beauty in our sin that 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 like on the outside it looks good and even from the outside she's holding this golden cup which looks good but on the inside what is filled with this golden cup is abomination and terrible terrible things and for, so for us, those of us that walk with Jesus and we're, we're fighting our sin the best we know how, and some of us maybe go like, man, why do I keep going back to this sin? It's so terrible. And, and once we do something and we confess it, we go, man, this is, this is horrible. Do you know that sin is attractive? It's seductive in nature. For all of us at some level on the outside, just like John, he marvels at it. And the angel has to say, hold on a second. Why are you marveling at her? I know she looks good on the outside, but let me explain what she's really all about. And isn't that the case that we get slowly drawn into the beauty and the pleasure of what Babylon offers? And that's the case with the original churches that are written to, that are directly addressed in chapters 2 and 3. Aren't they? They're walking with Jesus, but they've been slowly seduced by this way of the prostitute or by Babylon. You think of Ephesus, the first church addressed in chapter two, they're they're seduced by their good doctrine and their hard work, and they've lost their first love. Churches, Pergamum and Tyathira, they're seduced by the way of the culture. They've allowed this sexual immorality to enter into their worship. There's something attractive about the way that Rome is doing this, and they're going, like, yeah, let's just be a part of this. This seems normal. And God goes, Don't be seduced. By this way of living. That's attractive to you, but it leads actually to death. We see Sardis at the beginning of chapter three, they're seduced by their image. Jesus tells them, Man, you look good on the outside, but on the inside you're dead. And he says, Wake up, turn from that way, don't be seduced any longer. And then we see Laodicea at the end of chapter three, they're seduced by their wealth that their wealth would bring them security. They're saying, we're rich, we have no need for anything else, and they're being seduced by the way of the dragon. And Jesus is calling them out of that seduction to go, don't believe that. Life is, you're not going to get life there. It seems like you're going to get life on the outside. It's like the bait that's shiny, and the fish goes after it, and then it bites, and it doesn't realize there's a hook on the other end. And this is how sin operates for us. We need to realize that sin is attractive for our flesh, for our fallen state. There's something glitterly and shiny about sin, and it's slowly seducing us. How do we see it show up in in chapter 18? We're going to read a portion of it in a minute, but just before we read it, how do we see the seduction of Babylon described in chapter 18? If you look down at your Bible, verse 7 says that she's glorified herself and she's lived in luxury. So if, if, if we're being deceived, if we're being seduced by sin, by Babylon, by this prostitute, like how do we know, like what, what's a marker for us to go, oh, we actually are being seduced. We didn't even know it, but th- this, this makes us go, oh, I, I kind of have a heart check to go, maybe I am being seduced by the culture that I'm in and I don't even realize it. Here's two markers in chapter 7 that... John gives us, that she's being uh, seduced, that she has glorified herself and lived in luxury. I don't know about you, but that sounds pretty close to the American dream to me. And I love living in America. This is amazing. But isn't that American dream? Like it's self glorification, it's self exaltation. You do what you want, nobody can tell you anything different. That's what the advertisers are pushing for you. You have to do what's best for you. That's self glorification, it's not glorifying God. And then it's living in luxury. This idea of the bigger house. And the bigger portfolio and more money in your bank account that will provide you this idea of security. You need a bigger house. You need a better car. You need better clothes. Living in luxury. Right now, and I know this this idea of luxury is subjective. Right? Let's just be honest about that because we can go, well, we're not living in luxury. It's the people in Scottsdale. And the people in Scottsdale go, well, we're not living in luxury. It's the people in Bel Air in California. And the people in Bel Air go, well, we're not living in luxury. It's the people in Dubai. And so we can go like, it's not about how much stuff you have. It's about your heart. And what are you doing with the possessions that God has given you? If you're with us at the beginning of the year, we walk through this series called Rich Towards God, and in Luke chapter 12, Jesus gives this parable about this man that has accumulated all this stuff, and he goes, man, I don't have any more room. What should I do? And he tears down his smaller barn, and he builds a bigger one. Because for him, accumulation of stuff is the way he gets his identity. It's the way he gets his security. And this is this idea of living in luxury. You're not sharing your resources. You're just about, this is about me and this is about my stuff. And if that's you, if you're you're honest and you look at your life goals and your career goals and you go, okay, it's to get an extra zero in my paycheck. It's to get a bigger goal. It's to be able to do what I want, to have autonomy and live the way I want to live. Let me just suggest to you, you may be getting seduced quietly by the way of Babylon. And we all kind of fit into that, right? Like our culture applauds that. Why wouldn't you have goals to get a bigger house? Why wouldn't you have goals to be more autonomous, to have more freedom? And the text is going like, be careful. Like that's not the way of the lamb. That's actually the way of the dragon. And it's hard for us to realize that because it's so normative. It's the culture and the water we swim in. And this warning from John is going, you're not going to get life there. You might get it just for a minute, and you know the people that have all the money and all the autonomy, are they happy? They're not. So John gives us a good warning of that. If your life goals revolve around self-exaltation and accumulation of wealth, which is the dominant default of our culture, you need to be warmed. You might be being quietly seduced in the way of Babylon. Back in chapter 18, again, another way we see it show up in verses 12 through 13, there's this long list of good things. All these things, as you read down, you go, like, oh man, there's there's tons of stuff here. Why is there so much detail in this description? It's because these are good things that become ultimate things in the commodification of where we get our security from. Good things that have been twisted. And that's what we're going to see in chapter 18, the the people in the marketplace that are expecting the prostitute in Babylon to deliver these things and deliver these things. And that's where I get my happiness. And then when it's all gone away, they're going, I don't know who I am. What's the problem with this idea of idolatry, of getting things that we want? Getting things that we want when we want them. We talked about this last week, the idea of Amazon. Like, I get frustrated if it doesn't come in a day. You can type anything you want in, and it comes to your doorstep. And then you kind of have this expectation of quick, right now, get it to me now. I deserve it now. And we don't even realize it's changing the way we're operating, the way we're thinking. And then what happens, and this is what the problem is, is we project that mentality onto our relationship with God. And it's prostitution. Meaning, what is prostitution? It's a transactional interaction. I pay you, you give me something I want, when I want it, how I want it right now. And God does not operate that way. He doesn't want transaction, he wants relationship. He desires relationship. And so it twists our expectations of God when we don't get what we're asking for, what we're praying for right now. We get frustrated with God and we go, ah, this doesn't work. Because we've been formed by our culture, by the ways of Babylon, to expect God to do exactly what we want right now. And God's going, that's not how it works. Eugene Peterson uses this language that I think is helpful in the imagery of prostitution. He says, prostitute worship brings us great gain. We get what we want when we want it. Bride worship, which is the way of the lamb, is an offering. We give ourselves and we don't know how long we will wait for fulfillment. And some of us, if we're honest, man, we, we have just been formed and shaped in the way of the prostitute, in the way of Babylon, even in our relationship with God. My wife and I like to go to the beach, but we like to go to the beach for different reasons. We go to the beach and she, we, we get there and she camps, she gets her spot, she gets her chair and she gets her book. And she's just relaxing. And I'm like, you could do this. Where, we could do this wherever. We get a sound machine with the beach and the waves. Like, you could read at our home. Like, look, 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 at, the, look at the ocean. Like I, uh, so she camps out, and I run straight into the water. Because, man, I just want to play. I, I, I want a boogie board. I want to swim with my family. I just want to have a good, I want to be in the waves. And so we'll sit down, um, she'll get all squared away, and then I'll run out into the beach, whether it's with my kids or just by my, my myself. I'll, I'll run into the water, and then 15, 20, 30 minutes go by, and I'm just having a good time. And all of a sudden, if you've been at the beach, like this is what happens. I'm out in the water like this, like this, like this, and I look up expecting to see my wife right here, and where is she? She's way over here. And I go, how did I get here? Because unbeknownst to me, in the midst of me playing, I've been drifting. The culture has drifted me. The the waves have drifted me all the way down shore, and now I'm not where I want to be. I want to be next to my wife. So what do I have to do? I have to get out of the waves, and I have to walk all the way back. And what we've been seeing in Revelation is there's this undercurrent of the enemy, the ways of Babylon, the ways we live in our culture. There's just a strong current that's pushing and pulling us away from our relationship with God. And some of us, we wake up one night and we go, I, I don't even know how I got here. Like I was close to God. I was intimate with God. I was walking with God. And now all of a sudden I'm way out here and I don't even know how I got here. You got here because sin is elusive and it's seductive and it's pulling you away. And if we don't press against it, we will all find ourselves out there. And we need help to get back to our center, to the person of Jesus. The beauty of Babylon leads to this quiet seduction that we just need to be aware of. Sometimes we think, oh, it's not that big a deal. Oh, sin's not that big a deal. I'm walking with you. Like, it's quiet and it's seductive, and our culture is seducing us all the time in ways we don't even realize. Well, the first point is that the beauty of Babylon leads to quiet seduction. The second is that the truth of Babylon, if we wake up and we actually see the truth of what we're following, we're getting pulled away, and the the truth of Babylon leads to loud destruction. Let's pick it back up in chapter 17, verses 15 through 18. Jump down to the end of the chapter there. It just says this. It says, and the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated and the peoples and the multitudes and the nations and the languages and the ten horns that you saw, they are the beast that will hate the prostitute. So the prostitute's riding on this beast, which represents Satan. You think they're aligned together, but the beast turns on the prostitute. It does not end well her, it says this, they will make her desolate, the beast, and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out this purpose by being one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is a great city that has dominated, uh, do- uh, domination, over the kings of the earth. This is where it transitions from a a person, embodied person in sin, in a prostitute, to a system in Babylon. Let's keep going. Uh, Chapter 18, let's read verses 1 through 9. It says this. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean detestable beast. For all the nations have drunk the wine and the passions of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immortality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you should take part in her sins, lest you should share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds, a mix of double portion for her in the cup she has mixed. Verse 7, And she glorified herself and lived in luxury, So give her a measure of the torment and the mourning since her heart says, in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning shall never I see. Isn't this what sin does? It promises there's no consequences. She's thinking, I'm good, there's no problems here. I'll never see mourning. Verse 8, for this reason her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. The beauty of Babylon leads to quiet destruction. The truth of Babylon leads to loud destruction. When we follow follow idols, which we all do in some form or fashion, and we try to uh, attach ourselves to those things for our worth, for our meaning, for our value, do you know that they will fail us every single time? They might be good for a little bit. They might scratch and it's just for a second in our flesh. But ultimately, it does not end well for the prostitute. It does not end well for Babylon. It will not end well as you follow those idols. It's not the way of life. It's promised as the way of life, but it actually leads to the way of death. And we see this destruction that there's mourning and wailing when the people don't get what they're after, the things that they think will promise them life when it's taken away. It doesn't work. So if we're all seduced at some level, and we all know that the end goal is like, man, man, this isn't where I get life. What do we do? In the midst of the life we're in now, being seduced by the way of Babylon, we get our instruction in verse 4 of chapter 18, this other voice cries out to John and says, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. What does this mean to come out of the way of Babylon? I don't think this has to do with a physical location. Some of us will go, okay, this is what this says. I need to go and I live in a gated community and only talk to Christians and only watch Christian movies and only watch Christian media and only listen to Christian music again, those things aren't necessarily wrong, but I don't think it's about changing your location for safety because in other parts of the Bible, specifically Jeremiah, this prophet, when God's people get captured and they're actually in the physical place of Babylon and they're going, we need to get back to Jerusalem. We need to get back to our safety. This is uncomfortable for us. We don't like this. Jeremiah says, no. I actually want you to stay there. God wants you to stay there. In Jeremiah 29, we see this Uh, admission and uh, this encouragement from Jeremiah the prophet to say, hey, actually, you need to stay put. You need to build houses. You need to plant gardens. Take husbands. Take wives. Multiply yourself there. I I want you to stay generationally. I don't want you just to retreat and trying to get rescue. I want you to stay there. And then he says this in chapter 29, verse 7, which urban church planners love to use this verse. It says, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For its welfare, you will find your welfare. So coming out of Babylon is not necessarily about changing physical location. It's about changing your heart. It's about understanding that we all have these proclivities to sin, to move towards sin, because it's shining on the outside, and we need a rescuer to help remove us from that way of living. And heart transformation cannot happen on our own we cannot do it on our own we cannot do it on our own effort sin is too strong it's too seductive do you realize that we need somebody to come and rescue us to come out of Babylon we cannot do it on ourselves. it's only through the person of Jesus that we get rescued This prostitute comes riding on a dragon, but our rescuer, we're going to see in chapter 19, comes riding on a white horse to defeat death. And by the power of his life, death, and resurrection on this cross, his blood is shed and it rescues us from the way of Babylon. To go, is your heart need rescuing from your sin? everybody's hand should go up if that's true. I'm not asking you to put your hand up. But mine included, I need rescue from my sin, not just for my salvation initially, but for my ongoing selfish ways of thinking, from the ways I go, yeah, that was shiny, and I didn't talk well to that person, and it was sin, and it was not right. I need rescue to come out of Babylon for those types of things. That's why we have confession every single week. That's what it is. It's going, I don't want to marvel at that anymore. Where where was I marveling at the things that looked attractive to me and it led to downfall or will lead to downfall? I'm going to confess. I'm going to turn. I don't want to live that way anymore. God, would you rescue me? Take me out of Babylon in my heart. Take me out of this transactional interaction that I even have with you. If I do the right things, you'll be happy Help me focus on the person of Jesus and the blood of Jesus to rescue me. That's what it looks like to come out of Babylon, as he tells us to in verse 4. So the beauty of Babylon leads to our quiet seduction. The truth of Babylon leads to a loud destruction. And we see these people weeping. In the midst of the text, it's a loud destruction. But our hope in the person of Jesus, our true rescuer, is that one day the ultimate defeat of Babylon leads to a divine consummation. And I'm using this word consummation as the definition of a place where something is finalized or completed. Right, we, we buy new houses, we sell our old houses, and we're in this weird in-between already-but-not-yet time where we're signing stuff, but somebody needs to appraise it, and then the bank has to do this. It's not until we, we finally sign everything, it says the, the consummation of the sale is complete. And one day, Jesus is going to return. When he returns, do you know that the sin of the prostitute, the sin of the dragon, the sin of Babylon, the things that allure us will be gone forever. And we'll go, oh, I get to see my Savior face to face. I don't have to fight this sin anymore. That's the hope that we have as Christians, as we live in the already not yet until Jesus returns. Let's see how that plays out at the end of chapter 18 and then spilling over into 19. Look at uh, chapter 18, verses 20 and 21. It says this, Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Then a mighty angel took a stone, like a great millstone, and threw it into the sea, saying, so uh, will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. Jump down to chapter 19, verse 1. It says, after this, when Babylon is thrown down, and we're going to see the details of that in chapter, uh, at the end of 19 and 20, verse 1 of chapter 19. After this, I heard what some seemed to be a loud voice with a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are, just, are, are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who has corrupted the earth with her immortality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke of her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen! Hallelujah! Verse 5, from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants who fear him, small and great And then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out hallelujah for the Lord our God almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt him and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come. His bride has made herself ready and it was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure with the fine linen that the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are true words of God. The defeat of Babylon leads to this divine consummation. And this is what the gospel does. This is the hope for us. In verse 20 that there's a rejoicing when God crushes our idols. When we see in verse 21 that he's gonna throw Babylon into the sea, it will be no more. Sin will be no more. Every tear will be wiped away from the eyes and we will experience Jesus in his fullness. We won't have to fight this sin that so easily entangles us all the time in our world right now. We will be free and clear. That's the hope for us. In the midst of that gospel that Jesus rescues us From Babylon, we're called to rejoice in the midst of that. Even in the promise of that coming, we're called to rejoice. And then verse 8, what the gospel does is God clothes us. Just like in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, they try and clothe themselves with fig leaves, and it's not accurate. It doesn't work. We try to do that with our good works. It doesn't work. God has to kill an animal. There has to be a blood sacrifice. And then God provides the clothing for Adam and Eve. God provides clothing for us as we walk with him. The fate of those who follow in the way of the prostitute in Babylon are desolate, naked, devoured, and burnt up. But the fate of those who follow in the ways of the bride in the new Jerusalem are clothed, bright, and pure. As God closes us moment by moment, he feeds us, verse 9. He brings us to the table, to the marriage supper of the Lamb, and he feeds us goodness, and he feeds us in his word, and he feeds us at the communion table, and he feeds us with our people. We don't feed ourselves. He feeds us, and sin is no more. That's the hope for us and the final defeat of sin, the final defeat of Babylon. Eugene Peterson uses helpful language again for these two chapters. This is what he says. He says, prostitute is a sexual term. But Revelation 17 and 18, the great prostitute image, it's not about sex. It's a metaphor for worship gone wrong. The great danger that the world poses for us is not about its gross evils, but easy religion. The promise of success, ecstasy, and meaning that we can get for the price of the prostitute worship. It's the diabolical inversion of you were bought with a price to you can have me if you pay the right price. And what God is calling us to as followers of the Lamb is to recognize the price that was paid, that the rescuer came in, paid a price for our salvation, decides to clothe us, and that helps us turn away It helps us turn away when we're drifting away because of our sin. It helps us realign, and that's why we come to the table every single week. We come down to the table to remember the price paid for us that we cannot rescue ourselves. We cannot come out of Babylon on our own, that we need the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus to save us, not just for our salvation, for our continual sanctification and changing, and then we need to realize that these shiny things that promise life in our culture will not obviously promise us life. It's only Jesus where we will find true rest for our souls. So when you think about Babylon and the waters that we're swimming in, and you're just honest about yourself, like, where are you right now? Like How are you doing? Do you feel like you've drifted? And all of a sudden you're going, like, how did I get here? How did, I get, how, did, how did this happen? The promise for those of us that are found in Jesus is to come back to the table, to realign our hearts, to go, this is where I get my worth. I've drifted. I've been caught up. I've done stupid stuff. And Jesus says, come to me. Realign your heart to me. And I go, no, I don't think I can do it, God. I've got I've to fix my stuff first. I can't come to you. No, 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 come to me. Let me make you pure. Let me clothe you. Let me feed you. And our pride is the thing that blocks us from that. God says, no, let me break down that pride. Let me have you come to find true life. It's only found in him. And so that's why we come down to the table every single week to realign our hearts when we've drifted, when we've marveled at the things that we don't even realize we're marveling at. And we go, no, I only want to marvel at the person of Jesus. And so that's what we're going to do together as we respond. We're going to be reminded that sin is sneaky. It's seductive. And ultimately, it leads to death. But the one who died in our place gives us new life, gives us new food, gives us a new way to live. Let's pray and ask them to do that in our hearts today. Father, would you be with us as we look at your text? And we're just reminded of the truth that sin is elusive and seductive and it leads to death, would you help us remind us that we find life only in you? As we come to the table, we become broken and humble at the things we've marveled at all week? God, would you change us? Would you rescue us? Would you help us come out of the ways of the dragon and follow the ways of the lamb? We ask that you would do it only by the power of your spirit not in our own effort. Help us come humbly to the table this morning. We ask it in your name. Amen.